Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. And now it is my great pleasure to formally introduce today's guest co-host. She is a friend. She is a voice of power in this space. And I really do appreciate her saying yes to our invite. Um, None other than my friend, Aika Pathia. And Aika is an award-winning and highly sought-after equity consultant executive coach and speaker. She is the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, which is a consulting practice focused on coaching leaders and organizations to remove barriers to inclusion. Her practice integrates operations, leadership coaching, and education strategies that yield measurable success. So all of you, you know what to do, especially those of you who return week after week to our Intentional Conversations podcast. Please, through the emojis, through your expressions in the chat, let's let Ika Bathia feel welcomed. We appreciate her time, appreciate her being here. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for inviting me, Soror. I was so glad to see Sasha's face up there coming up next. So, um, And it's great looking around the screen, a lot of familiar faces from LinkedIn, but have never had a chance to speak to some of these folks. So really glad to see um, some of these familiar names and faces. Well, we are so glad that you are here. I look forward to being in conversation with you. And I'm sure that this audience will also have lots of questions for you and and, and would love to be able to just um, contribute to our dialogue. And you will be given that opportunity towards um, the latter part of our hour together today. So I one of the things that I always do, you know, I want to always make sure that I read a person's bio so we can share their credentials, their accolades. So people will know, you know, the lens in which they show up to this work, but equally important important. We like to get to know our guests a little bit better, right? We want to go um, a little bit below the iceberg. And so I would invite you to please share with this audience, what are some things that maybe we don't know about you from reading your bio and any other points of interest, maybe some intersecting identities that shapes the way in which you show up to this work? Let's see, probably like a lot of folks, I'm a parent. So I've got these two giant Brown boys who I'm raising. <laughs> so one is um, one just turned 14 and he's about six four, wow. maybe six five. And then one is um, 12, about to be 13. He's about five nine. So Wes and Ben, of course, shape a lot of you know my lens on the world and how I show up quite a bit. Uh, I would say the other part is I don't know. I talk about this. I'm pretty open about this. That my mom is also Japanese, so I was raised in a household that was Japanese speaking, but raised in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We were uh, very poor, so I had the gift of usually if you're not raised with both your parents, your black parents, um, and you're part black. If you're higher income, you're not going to be raised around black people. So it was actually a gift for me that we were lower income because I was in an all black community of people who look like me and went to a title one school. And at home, um, we spoke Japanese and my grandmother came over to help raise us. So I really got the best of both worlds and never had that moment where people talk about they were confused about their racial identity, never have had that ever. So I'm grateful for um for having had that gift. So, and I am a Southerner. I've probably spent the last 11 years in Seattle, um, just came back to Atlanta, but I was raised in South Carolina. So I absolutely consider myself to be a Southerner. 
I love that. I remember when you and I first connected, I was floored to hear that you were from Spartanburg, South Carolina. So just a quick geography um, context. Um, I, NWC is actually based in Greenville, South Carolina. So while we are 100% remote work organization and our colleagues are all over, our headquarters, which is where I'm based, is in Greenville, South Carolina. So Greenville and Spartanburg are like neighboring right up the street, yes. Yes. And so when we connected, I was like, I have to get to her. I have to get her. She's so amazing. And then when you said, I am from Spartanburg, I was floored. I was just so super excited. And so I'm That's glad. I know. Sparkle City. <laughs> there you go. Sparkle City. That is great. So give us a little bit more about your journey into this very specific work. What was the impetus that led you to say, I need to be in this space. I know I have value in this space. And this is why I'm really connected to it and I care about it. Yeah. So um, I really talk more about myself in terms of being a, um, a leadership development coach or executive versus DEI, because I've just always been clear they're not different things. They're not separate. I don't think there's such thing as a skill to be, for diversity, a skill to be <laughs> inclusive. I think that these are all outputs of strong and solid leadership. But when I think about be at least having a heightened awareness about who's in the room and who's not, who's being treated well and who's not, I think that that just comes from one, being you know raised Black and um, a female in America and also being first generation. I think if any of you are raised with um, a parent who this is not their first country or their first language, you understand what it feels like to always be othered, to be translating systems, very aware systems, be very aware of how people are marginalized without anything being said. Are they gonna give you the right change back? We never went through the drive-through of the McDonald's because my mom's accent was so thick and it just ended up being such a, a humiliating experience for her to try to even order. Um, and of course, in you know, South Carolina, like a lot of places, it was mainly everyone was either black or you're white. Yeah. So I think when you're aware and you're just immersed in that um, system and all of those ways of being marginalized, you're just, you have a heightened awareness. Mm. Um, I think when you're poor, you have a heightened awareness. Um, I think I remember being, you know, I do remember being bused once a week from our school for gifted program and was like going to a different country. Wow. And everybody there was all white. They had, you know, lunch from home. I was on free lunch. They didn't know what to do with me the first day. Like who's going to feed her? Didn't understand free lunch program. So all of that helps you realize who you are in placement, power placement and geographic placement, you know, in this country and also global North versus global South. So I think all of that gives you a heightened awareness. And when you're um, older, you start seeing that, wow, this, it's almost like you have um, different types of glasses that you put on because it seems like the people around you don't get it, especially if you're immersed in white spaces. Mm -hmm. So it's always been in terms of recognizing and seeing it has always been um, just a part of my identity. And I do think that also my trajectory in terms of being an attorney, I'm now like a recovering attorney, being a litigation attorney, all these different spaces I've been in, you see inequity a lot, um, and but you have more um, more space and more of a platform to be able to counter it. And I have just never been in a space where I would not say something. So I think the it just never occurred to me in different moments to not say things and maybe to my own detriment or to not support other people um, similarly situated in terms of also not ha having power exercised over them a lot. 
And it, it has never been an option for me. And it's been a journey for me and empathy to understand why that would be the case for other people. Mm. And um, how does that show forth in the work that you do with your clients today in your practice? So I think one example would be when I do, I work with a lot of companies. When I do work with companies, um, it's a necessity to actually make sure that I'm not just working with the C-suite. And there's an explicit ask of what am I doing with the, you know, the Black folks here? How, how, is the, how is it that the resources you're putting into me or into this uh, development for yourself as leaders is not helping the people who are most pained by your, you know, your incompetence in this space or as leaders. So making sure I spend time with employee resource groups, others. Um, the other part is naming it. If I am working with these different groups, um, making sure people are being paid. I don't do work with um, groups where they say, this is our ERG or this is our DEI council and they're not being paid for it. I won't take the contract. They need to at least get a percentage of time or a bonus or honorarium. Otherwise it's just perpetuating inequity. Um, so there's a lot of different ways. I think um, that part about empathy and understanding um, people who have not walked in my shoes and in a lot of ways it's very easy to be angry in terms of you got to be kidding me I mean we see this a lot yeah. in LinkedIn and other places like you know you, are you telling me you've been walking on this earth this long with all this privilege and you haven't realized any of these people around you in the background who are subservient and being treated less than so that that was definitely a journey for me is to um, tap into my own empathy and understand you know why is it and what's the path forward yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Now you also have um, a creative side and I, I certainly want us to tap into that as well. So share with us um, about this creative side as it relates to your writing. Yeah, so you know what, a lot of people, uh, it actually ties really well into the idea about empathy. Um, there's a lot of things that people get wrong about it. So oftentimes when we think about empathy, we think, oh, you need to be able to understand what somebody else is going through or have had that experience. I don't know how many of you may have shared something with somebody and they're like, I know exactly how that feels. It's actually kind of diminishing because ain't no way you understand what it feels like for me. And so empathy is really relating to the feeling that somebody else has. So if Tiffany tells me, you know, her mother just passed away, she just lost somebody. I may not be able to relate to having had lost my mother, but I can relate to the emotion of grief. Right, right. So the way that creativity comes into this is that there's been so many studies done that show that people who read literature in terms of fiction, not nonfiction, but where there's a lot of investment in character development actually are able to walk through and exercise what this person's lens and perspective on life might be. Mm-hmm. And that's why right now I'm writing a series of books. They're called Cozy Comfort Books. If you're not not familiar with that genre, think um, Angela Lansbury. So this idea of a woman lead character protagonist who is solving these crimes. And she's usually an entrepreneur, usually unencumbered in terms of no kids or husband, but has a, you know, maybe a romantic interest. And these books are really easy formula escape books, but the community kind of becomes a character. And it struck me there's not a lot of these that are written about people of color or with us in the front seat. Usually the things that we read or see on media is steeped in our trauma, is steeped in our pain, is steeped in we're the ones who committed the crime. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I thought that literature would be a great way for, for on two fronts. One is 
somebody doesn't have to go and say, Aiko, can I touch your hair? Instead, they can actually be reading about a character, understand what it felt like for that character. And the difference, of course, with the series that I'm doing is that there's a lot of um, curriculum that goes with it. And they can go and actually be in the community talking about why was that a moment and understand what's the Shinyan Act? What was the Crown Act? And have that conversation amongst themselves without accosting me, mm. without telling stories about myself or reestablishing stereotypes about me. And that's why I think that this book series is so important. Um, the characters are you know, entrepreneurs. They're people who look like me. Yeah. They're people who break a lot of the um, stereotypes about us in terms of the, the main character, her name is Tamika, but her best friend, Amina, is fourth generation college educated. Mm -hmm. Dad has been a CFO at lots of companies. A lot of people don't think about black people in that sense. And most of us know people like that. And it's not Beyonce and Jay-Z, it's people up the street or who went to the churches with us, but that's yes. important for other people to see as well and close the proximity gap um, with us without accosting us. Mm -hmm. I feel like after George Floyd was killed, a lot of folks wanted to go and talk to Black people, and we were trying to deal with our own, you know, our own pain, as we always are. Same with back when with Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, we became the, the focus, almost like a spectatorship. And instead, they need to do the work of actually having the privilege to be in my space and to hear my story. Mm -hmm. So I do think that reading books and fiction and things can help people to have that next step dialogue about, oh, is this what she experienced? I never would have thought this. You know, there's just one little snippet. I'm using the book that I wrote as an example, but this is for any literature, right? Yeah. One snippet in the book where Tamika's parking her car, she's looking in the rearview mirror and she's just saying, no more wigs, weaves, mm -hmm. or perms. Mm -hmm. All of us, I know Tiffany and uh, Jalisha and others will get that in a second, but it's, it's only two, uh, two lines in the book. Everybody else might just gloss over that. Yeah. But when you go to the reader's um, guide and you see about, hey, having this question, have you ever thought that you could be terminated from your job because of how your hair grows out of your head? Mm -hmm. so this is so important for people to use literature and the power of it to educate themselves and to have further dialogue that is not at our expense. But for us, it's great for us to see narratives about ourselves that are from people who look like us, like us, it's pretty much as world building mm -hmm. so that we can actually see ourselves in spaces where we are safe, where we are successful, where we do experience joy, where we are brilliant. And many of us have that, but I think the younger versions of us and others don't necessarily see that. So we need to do use creativity for world building that's gonna elevate us and for other folks to be able to do their work in terms of learning more about us in these healthy spaces. That is so rich, Create, using creativity for world building. You know, so many um, books and white papers and articles are out there right now about, you know, this broad topic of, of you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. And they are from a, um, intellectual perspective. They're like books to help people to really educate themselves, ground themselves. But what I also find to be interesting is that there's just as much effective learning to be had in this approach that you're talking about. And I don't, I think this is this is somewhat of a new phenomenon. How did you stumble upon this as, as now a way to help bring 
two worlds together, you know, the creative side of you, the writing side of you, but then also this side that cares deeply about the way in which people see humanity and see those marginalized individuals and, and understand more about their lived experiences. How did the two connect for you? So I've always liked writing, but my writing that has mainly gotten attention has really been um, nonfiction leadership um, types of work. And I love reading and during COVID, honestly, going um, when I'm when I was walking and I would listen to these cozy comfort books just as escapism. But it would always irk me when <laughs> that one character color come peeking in and it was like based on stereotypes and I just be like, oh, they just ruined the whole moment. And sometimes like I'll, I'll watch a lot of Ritbox or other things, period pieces. And the reason why I watch them is because they're safe for me to watch because there are no black characters in them. Because mm -hmm. the time we come in there, I'm jarred because I'm like, I know they didn't just present us. Why, why did he just come in there as the butler? What's that? And it messes me. Like I can't enjoy it anymore. Like my peace is shaken. So I'd rather just watch something that's all white or this all black. So I don't have to actually negotiate these things in my mind. And I'm not saying I, I can't watch shows like that, but I realize that we need to have more options. Yeah, yeah. And so that is um, part of it. And I thought, gosh, we can't always be the ones who are educating people. And what's fun, what's enjoyable. I love reading books. I love reading fiction and literature. And I want it to, to be enjoyable yeah. for us. I think a lot of people who look like me don't get to read books like this especially as millennial, we don't get to see world building unless it's like Afrofuturism or it's back, you know, when 12 years a slave or yeah. so, so it's just not in terms of right. us being in our normalized joy and world. And I wanted to build that option for us to have something to rally around. And I want, I felt like the curriculum piece of it was so important because that genre is mainly all white women authors, mm -hmm. majority and also white women readers. And for me, a lot of my experience with racism or being diminished has been with white women, not so much with black men. And I was like, this is an entry point to be able to expose them if they dare pick up a beach read that's written by somebody different and about people who don't look like them, this right. could be an entry point. And yeah. I think that it could be used in companies as well as something that's not always about let's do our unconscious bias training. Let's talk about like, let's talk about all the pain and difficulty and hardship versus can you relate to these characters as humans? If you cannot, why not? And do that type of work and have that kind of kind of conversation. I, I love that so much, you know, in the beginning, as I was talking about the observances for this month, and I mentioned Juneteenth, I said Black joy, and it's because that is what I want to gravitate to when I think about it. I mean, I, I totally understand the importance of having that historical knowledge, and, and yes, there's a time and place for that, but I also yes. don't want it to be at the expense of these wonderful Black experiences as well that many of us find so much joy in. So as you yes. were talking, I go... I was tickled because my husband and I have this thing whenever we go to watch movies my first question is are there black people in this movie I'm unapologetically <laughs> asking that question are there black people in this movie and he was like yeah I think so maybe and then I'm like you I'm sitting here watching and I'm like well okay he said there's a black person right there and I'm like 
She's at the head of the table. She's in this boardroom. And then when something went wrong, she immediately got up. It was because she was the executive assistant. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but I'm like, yes, where are the stories and the films that actually showcase um, you know, the excellence of blackness? And so I am with you. I love that you're bringing that perspective to, to literature. And I also think that it could be a great way for those who are either on the fence or maybe um, they are not even trying to engage in, in, in the conversation at all is that maybe an entry point that could allow them to find themselves in the conversation. And that's yes. where it starts, I believe. So I love the fact that you're not just seeing this, this fiction work as um, something for people to do on their own leisure, but also you're still making sure that organizations, corporations are seeing it as a potential tool to help um, foster the dialogue that needs to happen. I absolutely love that. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's quick to pick up, you know, something like how to be an anti-racist or what have right. you. It's very much head work. And yeah. when we go into fiction and we're talking about how you're relating to a character or what happened or their perspective and that you never thought about this perspective, now we are engaging head and heart. And now we can actually ask ourselves a question of, okay, what would I do in that situation? Or you can actually see yourself actively mentally championing somebody who doesn't look like you. And you can also understand what the cost might be. Right, right. Instead right. of reading books and I can do things one through 10, we know that if we want to be great leaders, we just read Forbes and HBR and go do it. But a huge part of this is the emotional invitation and being compelled emotionally to do something. Yeah. And I hope and literature can tap into that for us. I so I so appreciate that. So I want to shift a little bit. I know that sure. you, you spoke in the beginning about how you really see yourself more into this space of you know leadership development and coaching, um, and and less on the DEI. Although of course the, the two are intersected in many different ways. Can you explain from your vantage point how leadership inherently centers whiteness, and the challenge with that in terms of marginalized communities? Yeah. Um... I guess I would ask, how does leadership not center whiteness? How does leadership, as we know it, center anybody else? Yeah. And I don't know an answer for that. Point well taken, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think the way that we see it is maybe when Heritage Celebration Month, and maybe a CEO might open up, maybe might open up Black History Month or Women's History or whatever, but I don't know how it's not centered. Um, whiteness is not centered and otherwise we wouldn't have things like having to pass laws so that we can wear our hair the way our hair looks. Right. We wouldn't have to have things like the Rooney rule, which in and of itself is ineffective. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have to train people how to check their biases before they hire. We wouldn't have to look at the data around um, who is being promoted and who's not based on identity and see a huge disparity in that. Um, it, it's so much that tells us by default that we are definitely not the ones who are centered or even included. It's mm -hmm. almost as if there has to be, um, well, it's not almost, it's as if the powers that be, who are usually white, have to make a decision to invite us in or to consider us or to make us visible. So the idea about leadership that I think of is that you're already working at a deficit if you're in a homogenous environment. You're at a deficit because you don't have all of these other perspectives, skills, lived experiences. You have nobody who's gonna push you back. Right. You have nobody, you, we talk about giving and um, receiving feedback all day, but the person who's really gonna give you the feedback that you've never ever considered, because really um, the best way for leaders to grow is to hear something new they've never heard before. 
Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear in a room with everybody who looks like them or who are, who's afraid of them. So it is, it, it is that it's not, you know, go through the whole, it's the right thing to do It's the blah, 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 but you're actually working. Your organization is at a deficit when you don't have our voices or other voices at a table at the table and you as a leader, you're incompetent because you're unable to build and sustain a workforce that is diverse, equitable, inclusive. That means you're working at a deficit, even thinking about the talent pool that you have no access to or you refuse to access and the voices you haven't invited in or you refuse to hear. So mm -hmm. I think that um, workplaces and others have to understand this as, oh, it's not good for business and, or it's good for business and our money versus saying we are at a disadvantage a competitive disadvantage as well as a hum a disadvantage when we think about humanity and right. being humane. Right. Operating at a deficit. I love that. So what do you say to those individuals who are still stuck on needing the business case in order to be able to really engage meaningfully in the work of um, equity? You know, I don't say anything to them because they're not my clients and they're not the people mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be working with because I think it's diminishing for us especially if you look like me or us and you're going to work uh, with a client or anybody and they ask me to prove the case of DEI, I'm not the person for you. Yeah. So, so many ways you're making me have to um, validate my existence and my value. Mm. So I just, those aren't my clients. Mm. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you on that. Thank you so much. So um, we definitely need more BIPOC experts in larger numbers across so many different categories as innovators, coaches, authors. Um, how do we move past just representation? And we really try to think about critical mass that's needed in order for change to really be actualized. So how do we get past representation? Yeah. I think if we go back to the, what we were just talking about is if you're just recognizing that, if you're able to embrace and recognize that you are working at a deficit mm -hmm. because you don't have these perspectives, people, lived experiences, this talent in the room, mm -hmm. then you go past representation because you're thinking about the talent, you're thinking about the value add, you're thinking about perspective and you hold yourself accountable you have this moment, you should have this moment of self-interrogation of what's wrong with me mm -hmm. that I'm not able to tap into all of these folks who are brilliant and have skills and what's wrong with me that I can only create a company or a team that looks like me. Right. So you have to really be able to see what your own flaw and deficit is and own it, which is humility and learning because I actually don't want anybody to hire me if they can't start with what my worth is and it's not about bottom line, but they realize they have been at fault and have their own issue and gap that they need to deal with because I want them to be working on that. I want them to be in a learner mindset by the time they come to me versus thinking that they did me a favor by bringing me in and they can tick a box on another person and say, see what I did. Yeah, there's so much emphasis on um you know, capitalism, when the question of business case, proving the business case continues to lead these conversations. Yeah. And I've been seeing and hearing and a part of a lot of conversations where I know practitioners are really trying to shift that. I think at one point in time, um, it was a way 
to create that, that bridge, that entry point, right, to get some of those executive leaders into the conversation so that they will be um, even more compelled to try to leverage their, you know, sources of power and privilege to, to effectuate change. But now I, it's, I'm finding that it's, it's harmful in many regards because it is landing people there and they can't get past that, which means that the, the motivation is now oftentimes less on the humanity side and it's more on the what's in it for me, what's in it for the bottom line. And that can be very hurt, hurt, hurtful. But I, I also hear the story of many practitioners saying it is a way, it is an entryway, and we have to be strategic at how in which we get people in, into the conversation. Mm. But what do you say to that type of argument? So I think shortcuts don't work. All that glitters is not gold. Mm. I don't want any recruiter trying to get me into the door somewhere because they're like <laughs> doing it based on the business case. I don't want that. Yeah, I think it sets, yeah. sets people up for um, harm and failure. But if the recruiter is letting is starting from the baseline of hiring manager, you're at a deficit. Look at your team. How come you can't get this together? Do you know what you're likely missing? You need to do some work to figure this out because mm -hmm. now they are looking to themselves as the one who's flawed and who needs to level up. And that means that when I come in the door, they're already going to have some degree of humility of thinking about why is this the first time I've done this? How, why have I not done this? And maybe be more mindful. I need the person not only to be thinking about humanity, like us, oh, the right thing to do or whatever, but I need them to be thinking about how do I become a better leader and how, what flaw do I have that has allowed me to hire in such a way that I'm blind to all of this other talent? Because that means that when they bring me in, there's more of a chance that they're going to think about, am I treating this person equitably? Because what was the issue that I couldn't hire talent like this? Because right now the conversation is really perverse and so bastardized in the sense of thinking that one, you're doing people a favor by hiring them in a certain, uh, you know, or that people should be grateful that you're there because that's the first thing that happens when, right. you know, Tina might say, hey, this is out of pocket. Well, you should just be happy you're here is what may be the internal voice. But if you had that check beforehand, the person's going to think, oh man, maybe this is why I can't hire Tina and what's going on with me. I need them to be at a point of self-interrogation first. And I think that clients need to, if you're a recruiter, clients need to be able to have an option and have honest to God truth told to them of, you're going to be on this team. Nobody on this team looks like you. They're hiring you because they feel like they need to have these numbers. I want to have a choice. Maybe I will still choose to go there because it's an opportunity and I want it. But people need to be honest with us. Yeah. Like if you really, you know, care about the people who you're recruiting, you call yourself a whatever, what do they call them now? Like diversity recruiters or whatever. You need to be honest to me about what I'm walking into. And you need yeah. to be honest about that team, about how they may need to level up to really even be able to tap into my talents. Mm -hmm. so not to support me, but to tap into my talents. Yes. I love that. The accountability so doesn't happen that way. And the yeah. way DEI is framed, that whole, the sector of diversity, equity, inclusion is very white-centered. Mm -hmm. um, even when you think about words like microaggressions, like I know a Black man founded it from Harvard and coined that term, different generation, different time. But I think when you think about microaggressions, you have to understand there's nothing micro about it. When nothing I'm working micro with people, about it. Yes. 60, you know, they're 60, 70 years old, and they remember something that happened when they were in second grade. Yeah. 
the idea of unconscious bias. I don't need to hear anything about something being unconscious or whatever. I need to know what are you going to do about it? Because mm-hmm. you need to be responsible for the impact, not about how conscious you were or were not. You need to be responsible for the impact. Just like if you run a red light and you hit somebody, I, you, you didn't see the red light because you were looking away doing something else. So what? You're responsible for the impact. So even the whole language in the DEI sector is so white-centered and allow so many doors of escapism and lack of accountability. That is so good. That is so good. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship because as you were really describing the clients that you um, can be selective about saying yes and no to, I would imagine that for many practitioners who could be listening to this, um, maybe they weren't able to start that there, right? Maybe they did have to kind of work their way up to, this is what I am really committed to. And so if this is not in alignment of your values and your approach, we're probably not going to be able to partner together in an effective way. So have you always been at this place in your business and your practice where this has been your your position on whether or not you will take on a particular client? So I would say yes. And I've always been very honest with clients. And I think that's very telling about who decided to work with me and who didn't. Right. So, and I think a lot of uh, my clients were self-selecting. I think that later I realized I had to be very explicit with people mm-hmm. because I needed to make sure they knew what the path forward was and what was wrong in terms of why I didn't want to work with them. So that's the saying really clearly, I'm not going to work with an ERG or DEI folks if this is not a part of their job or they're not being compensated for it because they didn't really understand if I'm just saying, hey, this is inequitable. So I had to be much more explicit about you know, what the issue was and how it could be um, repaired. So I think in that way, um, yeah, there's a lot of that. I think we could even go into the conversation about what people are willing to pay or not pay for your services. I think a lot of it has to do with us valuing our quality of work, what we're bringing to the table and our services. I think that weeds folks out right? Um, in terms of clients who you're going to work with or not. But I do understand if you're just starting out, you may not have had the capital or credibility yet that you might start at a lower price point or maybe you're on the job learning or something. But um, I think there's a lot of things that we have to weigh and balance about our own boundaries. Right. A lot of DEI practitioners are often burned out. Um, you know, it's emotional taxes work. And if you're not charging well, then it, it can, you can be burning at both ends of the candle, right? Yeah. And it, it can take a while to get to that realization because, you know, as, as someone who's five years into doing this work from a, a founder entrepreneur perspective, I, I feel like I'm probably in the camp of some of those practitioners who early on, um, we were we were about survival. You know, we really cared deeply about the work, but also we needed to keep the lights on. We needed to make sure we could support our families. And so I think that the, the realization of sometimes, you know, when we say yes to something, depending upon where we are, it, it may not hindsight feel like it was the best thing for the work, but it was like, maybe I can try to persuade um, some level of change to occur. Now, I will say, um, you know, five years in, we, we can be very selective about what we say yes and no to. And so having those boundaries and being clear about we're, we're, not, we're not just for everyone. Here's how, here are the clients that we best can partner with. And I, I think that what you've expressed here today certainly amplifies that. So why is entrepreneurship a form of liberation? And do you believe it's a form of liberation? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that's like my leading tagline, like defining success in your own terms. 
creating the life that you want to live. You cut, you went right to the next question, but I was just going to pause and say a big shout out to you for having your own company for five years. Oh, We've thank actually you. Overcome so many odds. Uh, if anybody is familiar about um, small businesses and what it takes, and then also understand being a woman and then understand being a black woman, that it is such a huge accomplishment that you're in year five and still thriving. So I do want to pause and acknowledge that. You are so incredible. I will tell you that there were lots of congratulations when I started announcing, okay, we beach five, yay, five. And when I received huge. that beautiful package from you of flowers just to, you know, um, help commemorate um, the, the fifth year, I was I was so touched. And so thank you so much for, for sharing. Yeah, that. I think it's, it's huge. It's a testament to you being kind of you know being dedicated and in the grind I love seeing your pictures because I love seeing all of the you know just the joy and with your family and hiring people who look like us and having folks come to you know my team meetings and stuff and they're not thinking about how their hair looks they're not thinking right. about um oh my gosh I need to make sure that every you know subject verb agreement even though I know that they are dope and can write and right. kill it and get everything else but they're not having to constantly filter themselves yeah. and you know be able to really speak truth to power and tell me what I need to hear and know that I'm going to have their back or we're going to have a real conversation about stuff and I mean yeah. that is an experience that many of us unfortunately don't have we go into these places and these places want you to assimilate, code switch, cover, or whatever. People awesome. say they want feedback and they want all this until their feelings are hurt. Um, then next thing you know, people find themselves on a performance improvement plan and then now they can't get a job somewhere else. So it is, entrepreneurship gives you a degree of, um, I think, emotional capacity and mental capacity that you expand and lose just by showing up in these workplaces Absolutely. knowing you're going to be the only one knowing yeah. that it, anyway it's just a it's a whole like can't win scenario in a lot of ways mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I do think it is for me it is not only freedom for me even though um, I've always been a very hard worker but I have not worked the way that I have for my own business and for the people I work my I hire oh, I've never hard. worked like this and I don't even feel as tired Yes. And it's because I'm doing stuff that I believe in with people who I love and in community with people who I care for. Of course. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that because sometimes I have to really catch myself because I really do have uh, this, this incredible joy for work, right? And I know that's, you know, really unpopular for a lot of people, but I'm fortunate to be in a space that I really do, I really am connected to. I care deeply about it. And so it often doesn't feel like work. And so when I say I have to catch myself, um, you know, I, I frequently have conversations with my team to say, look, if you get an email from me at off hours and I, this guy didn't schedule it, it's not because I'm expecting you to work, it's because really I get pure joy <laughs> from creating and curating and exploring and developing and, you know, all of the above. And so, yes. Uh, and I think that's important for this space and this work, because if not, we know how hard it is. And so, you know, I was, I was sharing with others um, just recently about how as practitioners, sometimes we don't get to necessarily step aside when, when all of these social complex issues surface in the media that triggers us, you know, because we are expected to be on. We're expected to help support our clients through how should they navigate this within their organizations. And I think that what that does is it causes us to not necessarily take the appropriate time that's needed to really say, how is this affecting me? I know that I need to be here for these clients, for these individuals, but how is this now affecting me? Yes. And so we have to force that into, into the practice. We absolutely do. Yes. And 
I will say that when we find ourselves doing that, we have to remember one of the things we're actually doing is we're recentering whiteness, mm. recentering these clients, toxic to yes. and these other things. And it's like, so to what end, right? So, you know, and there are things that we need to do, give ourselves permission to do. Like I said, I grew up pretty poor and I had to give myself permission to, you know, do a lot of things like you know, buy the house I want to buy, go on the trips that I want to go on and give myself permission about that because you're so used to the way that the scarcity mindset can sink in, you will just be at a grind for the sense of, you know, financial sustainability and security. Like, oh, I want to make sure that the lights are going to be on. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a lot of unlearning that you have to have that's in your bones. Um, and again, if we watch what's on television and all these other things, it normalizes this for Black people to the point that we expect it more than we expect prosperity in a healthy way. Or we expect to have um, the freedom and liberation to have choice about where we want to work and who we want to work with. And you know, I will say that in the beginning, I did say yes to things um, out of like the scarcity mindset, not yes to stuff that I felt were going to... Um, compromise my values, but more than what my capacity might have been. And so it's a lot of constant unlearning, but I think being an entrepreneur, I'm able to set a lot of the container that I work in. Like I do, I've written this article on what it means to work with black consultants and black equity consultants. And it's a pre-read for anybody who wants to work with my team. Like, you're not going to come up here and hire us and then tell us that you know more than us. Why'd you hire me? Or I'm not going to go in here and revalidate everything that we did because you don't agree with it. Well, if you agreed with it, you wouldn't agree with white supremacy and everybody in this organization and leadership team wouldn't be white. So I don't expect you to agree with it. Right. And I'm not hired here to get your agreement and accommodate you. So I think that a lot of that space and having that license as an entrepreneur is major. It's major for our mental health, our sustainability. Yeah. I hope that my team members and other folks, you know, I do, I posted the other day about our success in our company and not as a brag because I wanted other people to see you can do, you know, it's nothing special about me. You can do world building, you can create your boundaries and you deserve it. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough people saying that to us. That's so true. I remember that post. I remember that post. And it was it was so inspirational. And also the article that you just referenced. Give us a title of it because I remember when you posted that, it blew up. You had so much commentary over it because it was it resonated with so many of us. Um, yes, you know, and what it keeps uh, it's coming. Medium. I don't know if somebody can put it in a chat, but it's a medium, but it's um I think it, I wrote it about equity consultants because you're doing the work and being the work. Yes. But it actually resonates for anybody who's a person of color being hired, particularly black, because we know that in the spectrum of racism, anti-blackness is the extreme part of the extra, of the um, spectrum. Um, but yeah, I so remember that article. So my team will try to source that and place it into the chat for this community. I'm going to shift in just a second to take sure. audience questions and comments because I am being selfish with this time. I know that. I apologize to you all, but I'm just so enjoying this conversation. Um, I'm telling you what's coming up for me in this conversation that is creating a sense of, um, of frustration. And we've, we've been talking now for 47 minutes, but um, is it even possible for us to get to a point where it's realistic to expect for our world to stop centering whiteness? And what is that going to take? I mean, every it seems like every turn in this conversation, it went back to that. 
And so it's just, I'm feeling it in my gut, you know, what is that going to take? Is that possible? You know, I think, again, my joy is not centered or based on white people coming to Jesus or understanding what my value is. If my joy were centered on that, I think it's just, it's over, right? Um, but I think that idea of us being able to create spaces, worlds, relationships that honor and value us, that feed us and nurture us, that's what it is. But we have to be able to find spaces where we can give ourselves permission to do it. Um, and I do know that that is a mindset of privilege, but I also think it's one of empowerment for us to know there's something more and to be able to pursue it um, for ourselves. So I think, you know, I just, you know, I can't stop the fact that, you know, Wes could be going down the street and, you know, some Andrew Zimmerman can jump on him when I'm not there. I can't stop that. But I do make sure that every summer we spend at least 30 days or more in a majority black or brown country. Mm -hmm. and we moved back to Atlanta from Seattle for a lot of the similar reasons, but we're still in the U.S., but I want them to know what it feels like to be whole and in their body, and I can't expect that for them if I'm not doing it for myself, so we're in communities of love. We're around people who value and honor us and love us. Some of those people are white folks who've been champions, but again, they know what the deal is. Mm -hmm. So, but it really is about us creating these spaces and also understanding that we deserve it. A lot of the work that I do with um, us or in community is unlearning things, naming narratives that are out there about us, some of them that come from our families of origin, but understanding that we deserve it and trying to figure out what does the path towards that look like. But a lot of it, we have to start with our mindset, understanding that I might have to go into this job every day where nobody looks like me. They don't get it. And I see how they talk about people, but I need to keep the lights on. But guess what? It's not going to infiltrate who I am. It's not going to define my worth. I'm not going to internalize it. And this might be where I am right now, but it doesn't have to be where I need to be next month. Mm -hmm. So understanding what does a plan look like? What do things look like? But if anything, we're not internalizing what's being told about us um, systemically and in so many ways, media, whatever, take your pick. Like we're talking about creativity, literature, all these other things. I love it. Okay, so I do wanna open it up now. If you have some curiosities you're holding and you want to contribute to our conversation with a question or maybe a statement, I would love to invite you to unmute yourself and I will spotlight you and let you share. Um, or if you are um, one of those individuals who prefer to place your question or comment into a chat, I'll give you a chance to do so at this time. And please act quickly because this moment is going to run out in about 10 minutes. And I certainly want to make sure that um, for those of you who have some thoughts you're holding, you have an opportunity to share. Just giving it a moment to give space and time for people to decide if they would like to share at this time. Y'all know I have more questions. I just have a question about Mikkel. Is your, your name Mikkel Greenwood or Groenwood? Am I saying your name Michael. correctly? Go ahead, almost, Michael. Almost. It's a microphone <laughs> Michael, Michael, because I see you on LinkedIn all the time. So yes. I'm so glad to meet you here. <laughs> Sorry. And I saw some, I think, is it Kabina had his name up? How did I say his Kwabana. name? Kwabana. Yes. Kwabana. Yes. trying to get me today. Kwabana. Hey, how you doing, Sor? Yeah. Oh, hey, what's up? <laughs> you got our colors on, right? Yeah, I, I see it. I see you. I, I see I you. Get the memo. I should have my, my pinky green on today, too. Uh, you might, it looks like you had earrings. You, you, you oh, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. You yeah. always stay ready. So, uh, 
I'm Kwabana. I am a DEI uh, practitioner. Much of my experience is in talent acquisition, uh, specifically trying to um, create access to opportunities for organizations because um, a lot of times, as we all know, people people surround themselves by people who look like them. It's a human natural instinct, right? And so if much of our HR departments are white and white women in particular, it creates a very small sliver of the total population. And so I'm really intrigued by your books and what's even more intriguing is the curriculum that goes along with it. That is an amazing um, way to um, get the hidden lesson in. So my, I have two degrees in education and, and, you know, third year of undergrad, you know, they teach you about the hidden lesson of, of your lesson planning. And I just want to commend you on finding the hidden lessons, uh, finding a way to get the hidden lessons out in a um, non uh, abrasive way. Like people, pe I mean, they're hidden lessons. So people aren't looking for them, but you're creating a space for you to draw connections so that people can connect to that humanity. And then um, to your point, not from a, um, a white male uh, dominated perspective, but from their own experience and a human perspective. So I just want to say kudos to you. And I'm really excited to see how that moves forward. Thank you. Um, one thing that I will just add is that, you know, when we have the statement about people are was people hire people who look like them. Mm -hmm. the, the actual formula in between that is that people surround themselves by people who they are most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So if we think about this book, my goal is to make people more comfortable with different and other. Because mm -hmm. if you notice, like if you're somebody who's white and you've been raised in an all black community, you're more comfortable with black people. It's not because they look like you. So Very the true. idea is changing that delta of comfort level. And that's what I hope that we're able yeah. to get to. Yeah. I love that clarification. I'm gonna uh, spread that word. I appreciate that. Uh, can I say one more random thing? Okay, I guess, cause I feel like it's not a complete yeah, um, here if I don't say it is that the other part is that so if um, Adam is hiring people or Tina's hiring people, they're both women of color, they're less likely to hire people who actually who look like them if they're in a white dominant system because Tina knows that she's gonna be way on the hook and on the line if it doesn't work out when she hires Keisha. And when she's in the interview room, she can't, as the only one, Tina can't be the one to say Keisha's the best candidate. So what we know is that it's not just the comfort level who you're with, it's how power infuses itself and makes, compels us to behave a different way. Otherwise, Tina could hire Keisha right off without having to think twice. The other part is that how that shows up is that, you know, there's a study about interview process and they'd be like, oh, we need to get the one, you know, black person, we're gonna get Candace to be on the interview list. We need the white person, we're gonna get Sharon on there as the woman. But what they found out, if there's that one person on the interview loop, they're less likely the, to um, say anything and you're more likely to get more of the same because the men in the room are expecting Sharon to be the voice for women. They're expecting Candace to be the one for Black people or Black women. 
And so therefore, because of what I just talked about, what could happen to Tina, they're less likely to say anything. So if you have a a room full of white men who know what the game is, the deal is, and they're more aware, you are more likely to actually get a black candidate or woman of color without having Sharon or Candace at the table. I'm sorry, I had a wanted to put the full formula together because I want people to see how power actually plays out and why insight and self-interrogation is more important than this idea of what Dr. Nika asked about earlier, which is representation. Mm-hmm. No, Iko, that's so good. I'm glad you, you know, glad you circled back to that point. It's also, I see you, Tiffany, I'm coming to you next to spotlight you, but I see, I see it similar even with people that are not just being recruited, but already a part of an organization. If someone is now, they have some, some type of issue or they are complaining about maybe their performance, you know, if someone even wants to stand up for them, they shy away from it because it's almost like if, if you know, this doesn't turn out well, then I am going to be negatively impacted. So anyway, I, I appreciate you bringing that. Tiffany, I'm bringing you forward. How are you? Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you for, for hosting. This has been an awesome time. Hi, Aiko. Hi, Tiffany. Uh, want to say hi, not only from this perspective, but also, uh, uh, I also grew up in Spartanburg. So that, that was a... <laughs> Uh, a welcome uh, thing to hear. So my question is um, around diversity in terms for for companies, those companies that are international and don't don't necessarily see diversity or think about it in the same way as we might hear, uh, as we might do here in America. I'm curious, do you have any um, experience with those type of companies and how you start to get them to see the nuance of diversity that that we have that they may not experience in in other countries. So I do have um, clients based in other um, countries. Uh, I would go back to where we started from when Dr. Nika asked about um, the business case and why people do this. That business case may not resonate in other places. I don't know. I mean, it should in the sense of you get different ideas and you're going to get whatever. But when you think about diversity and how it became part of corporate America, it was based on, you know, the civil rights movement. And it was really about Black people not having an opportunity. It wasn't about all these, uh, you know, a lot of other groups. Diversity became a, a word in corporate America because in the US, the systemic and historic bias, and so they had to actually create laws around this. So diversity by default meant racial diversity. Now nowadays people talk about all this other stuff. But if I go back and I talk about just the starting point about why it's important to have us here in my clients who are in you know, Japan or in different countries in Africa, I would say, you know, I'm still saying the same thing about you're operating at a deficit. And these studies that talked about diversity being, you know, great for the bottom line anyway, like if you look at McKenzie, Deloitte, Lena, and all of those, the diversity factors they were talking about were racial diversity and gender diversity. I just want to be really clear about that. And people ran with it and started talking about all this diversity of thought and all this other stuff. But that empirical data in those studies are based on race and ethnicity and gender. But folks went all the way with all this other stuff. But when I'm talking with clients who are in, you know, they're still in the global north often, I am saying, what's your deficit here? What are you missing? And then we go deeper about why. And now if I have a clear why around this, a lot of times it goes to um, issues around equity and people not believing that these folks can do, you know, are qualified, are better. And still, even if I'm in other spaces, it's still counter to blackness, still anti-blackness. Some places it's 
the core that's really hard is when we're talking about LGBT identity, especially for my clients who are in different countries in Africa. And that, I mean, where it's even illegal in a lot of spaces. So you've got to, I think you've got to understand your client and the spaces they're inhibiting and really understand their why and what their narrative is about this and what do they, why are they doing this work? Now I can better understand, okay, what is it that you need to know to compel you to move forward? Does that help Tiffany? It does. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for your question, Tiffany, for being here today. We are out of time and I, I hate that because I feel like this could go on for another hour. So I'm so grateful that you said yes to our invite and we look forward to your book releasing. Um, so keep us posted on that. I think you said in the spring. Next spring, and it is called the um, Magnolia Murder Mysteries. And the first book is called Gardner's Plot. Fantastic. So super excited about that. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're super excited to stay connected um, so that we can make sure we're supporting this book. I think it's, it's really important work that you're doing. I want to give you the final 30, 60 seconds to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate to you. But what would you like to leave this audience with maybe that we haven't talked about so far? Well, one, thank you to you for having me. Um, two, for people to think about where their boundaries come from and what informs them. And are those boundaries based on their own values or are they based on the stories they're telling themselves and the society tells them about what they can or cannot do? And is there anything you're doing that you should actually be saying no to? Mm, And ask yourself every time you say um, yes to something, should I be saying yes to it? I love it. Thank you so much. This is Intentional Conversations podcast. We hope to see you next week. You all have a safe and healthy weekend. And uh, we thank you for your for your participation in today's, um, today's show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.